Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing. Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. Hello, this is episode 218. And I'm going to be bringing you an interview that I recorded when I made a little trip down to Allegan, Michigan, to Natural Cycles Farm, where I met with Lori Vesk. Lori and I met for the first time at the Michigan Fiber Festival, where I took her indigo dyeing class and really enjoyed that. And she's going to be doing a natural dye presentation and workshop with the Woodland Weavers and Spinners Guild that I'm president of this year here in Grand Rapids. So I'm looking forward to that. So during my trip, Lori gave me a tour and showed me all the animals and plants and all these great aspects of her farm, which is not only organic, but her and her partner use biodynamic principles to run the farm. And I'm going to let her explain that, but it's like going a step beyond an organic farm practice. Lori's background is in food engineering. She has a degree in food and biological process engineering, and she has since gone on to get all kinds of experience growing food and raising sheep and so many things. So she's really branched out. And her focus now on what we talk about is growing food for consumption locally. So kind of having that farm to table concept in practice. Uh, She does a lot of work in that area, but then she also is really focused on helping people rethink their consumption of clothing in department stores and trying to work with some folks on the east side of the state to get a fiber shed expanded to the West Michigan area and really create that network for people who do want to wear locally produced clothing, people who want to use fibers that are grown in their area here in West Michigan. So we cover a lot of ground in this interview, and I hope that it gives you a chance to listen and maybe reflect a little bit on your own spending habits. A lot of you are makers out there who listen to the show, so I know you're probably there's probably a number of you sitting out there wearing handmade clothes. That's awesome. A lot of people have successfully converted a lot of their wardrobe, if not the whole thing, into really cool and very hip-looking handmade garments. I have several handmade things in my closet, but I am definitely nowhere near where I want to be. If anyone figures out how to freeze time, please, please tell me. Tap me on the shoulder, unfreeze me, and give me the secret because I want to be able to sew all my own clothes. So maybe that's something you can do. Grab that sewing pattern that you've had sitting around and you haven't done anything with yet and uh, continue to listen to the interview and maybe you'll get some major progress toward that goal. Okay, so I'm going to get to that interview. Here we go. Well, Lori, thank you so much for inviting me to your farm and giving me a tour. We just met the sheep, the chickens. Let's see, what else do you have out there? A Turkeys, cow. geese, <laughs> a little calf. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely a barnyard. Tell us the name of your farm and what your, your whole mission is here on okay. this land. 
The name of our farm is Natural Cycles Farm. We got the name because it, my partner Pete is a cyclist and that kind of comes into it. But also we have an organic farm. We're also working towards a biodynamic, using biodynamic principles. And the idea of that is that the farm and everything in it is an organism. So it kind of brings in cycle of the seasons, cycle of growth, and and all that. And that's how we got the name. And, and you're keeping it natural. Like you're not altering that with any like artificial fertilizers or we grow vegetables and small fruit, which we sell at the farmers market. And we've decided to use a program called Certified Naturally Grown which uses all the standards and requirements that the USDA organic uses, but it's not government run. It's a nonprofit and each farm in each region is inspected by another farm that does a similar thing in the area. So it's peer reviewed as opposed to governed by an outside um, agency. And we prefer that because, first of all, we're a very small farm. We don't, um, we've been here two years and... And where, tell people where you are. We're in southern Allegan County, in between Allegan and Otsego. Um, Not far from Kalamazoo. Not far from Kalamazoo. We're about half hour from Kalamazoo. Will Um, you be selling um, dye materials at some point? I currently sell um, the I sell dyed naturally dyed yarns okay at the farmers market and um, dryer balls and ultimately that will all be from our own sheep currently okay. I we had we got sheep last year and there's a meat breed called Tunis and as well as a number of fiber animals. I have, we have 26 sheep, about nine of them are tunis and the rest are fiber animals. Okay. Um, the idea is to increase the meat production to probably 30 to 50 animals. That's ewes and lambs. Okay. So that we'd be taking to market maybe 10, lamb, 10, 10 lambs per year. Um, Can you get fiber from those? Yes. Too? Yes. Okay. Tunis is is a what's called a medium fine release. Okay. It's a it's got it's very spongy, mm-hmm. um, lots of loft, and it's it's not one of one of the finest fibers from sheep is the merino. Right. And and I think often that's used in too many situations where because it's not a very strong fiber so trying to make socks that last out of merino is not not the best idea but when you when you go to a fiber show or a or a yarn store that's pretty much what they make sock yarn out, out because, of. Because you think it's because people feel it and they're like, oh, this feels so it's great. It feels so great. I'm right. against my skin. But I can make a pair of socks and they take a long time. Oh, they take a really make. long time to make. I've only made and, one pair. And yeah. 
I can wear through the heels in three months. Yeah, so so frustrating. So it's frustrating. So if I take the tunis mm-hmm. and which is not, it's not carpet wool. It's it's a it's a very it's still nice. Soft it's on your still skin. soft on your skin. And say mix that with some merino to get a little bit softer. What would be the content, like the, the mix, fifty-fifty? I or? don't know. I'll have to. Okay. I'll have You're to experiment. Expect. Okay. To, to find a good one because historically, socks weren't made out of merino. Wool. What were they made out of? I have to do a little bit more research. I have that that fantastic book on on different yeah the sheep different sheep breeds. Yeah. And, I have and what their what yeah. their wool is we'll like. Look it up at some yeah. other time. Yeah, yeah. but. There's all there's there's so many different breeds of sheep. Mm-hmm. There's so many different types of wool. Right. That they each had, they they each had purposes for which they were better suited. And so you didn't just use one type of fiber. So for, we've kind of gotten away from that yeah, a little we bit. Have definitely it's like, looks like you're different. trying to get people back thinking about okay, this is what I want to do. Let me get the best fiber for that job. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings into the conversation what my goals are from the fiber perspective. The farm that we have, it's we don't look at it just as a place, a way to make our living. Mm-hmm. We're making our life here. Mm-hmm. So we're growing, growing food, vegetables, fruit, meat eggs to feed ourselves Mm -hmm. and it's difficult for example on vegetables to grow enough to feed yourself without also producing more than you could possibly eat yourself Mm -hmm. so we feed ourselves first we sell the rest and anything that's extra beyond that can feed the chickens it goes back into the soil as compost Mm -hmm. but we don't just need food we also need clothing right and i've been involved in the local food movement for many years and the frustrating part about that is that's not the whole story if we want to be a strong vibrant, economically strong community, we have to provide for ourselves in more ways than just food. And the number of people who do not think about where their clothes comes from is way greater than the collective amnesia about where our food comes from. The damage that's done in other parts of the country, other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. for us to get the clothes that we want to completely change our wardrobe every year to me is appalling and we have so little regard for the clothes we wear and those impacts that I think it's got to we have to change that we have to relocalize our food our clothing and other aspects of our life. This is really coming to a head now, too, with um, some of the stuff that's happening. I'm not going to corrode this our conversation with being real political because it's more fun to talk about farming and natural dyes. But what's happening right now, we're basically in a trade war mm-hmm. with some of our closest neighbors, yep. Mexico and, and Canada. Canada. And it's crazy to think that because, I mean, these Canada's been our longest ally for so long. And this is kind of going on right now 
and um, I know Joanne sent out they they sent the CEO of Joanne sent out this this letter basically saying to people like hey sign this petition because our our all you know all these products in our product line are going to go up and at first I was like well I'm not surprised at all to hear this but then I was just thinking well why should we preserve a giant corporation's ability to get very cheap supplies when instead it would be so great to see a giant corporation innovate in a way where they're buying more things made in the United States. And um, with our clothing, I know, um, you know, my kids, we, you do back to school shopping, right? Your kids grow. Um, we've incorporated secondhand shops into the back to school shopping. And my kids have taken to this very well, which oh, I'm good. Because when I was a kid, you know, I was, um, grew up in the eighties. And if you came in with secondhand jeans, and they were ripped, and you had like a, a one of those really stiff patches on it. Yeah, <laughs> there was no like mending movement. Like, no, I mean, no. it was like you, people thought, "Well, geez, you, your family must be really poor, and you were made fun of." Like yep. it was not a badge of honor in any way. Now you come in with ripped jeans and you mend them. You are like a rock star. Like it's really cool and it looks mm-hmm. great. Um, you know, it's, so it's really interesting this place we're at where. You know, we're starting this trade war, and we're kind of, in a way, shooting ourselves in the foot because a lot of us we won't be able to get access to our cheap products anymore. But it, it's a perfect time, maybe, for what you're talking about to it, the resurgence it, it of really, making our own things here yeah. in this country. We used to have a thriving textile industry oh, gosh, in this country, yes. and we don't have it anymore, and it's a shame. When you listen to the economic reports and they talk about how GDP is at this level and how all these countries or companies are becoming more efficient, they're becoming more efficient because they're downsizing jobs. And we never talk about what kinds of jobs the ones we're losing are being replaced with. They're being replaced with service jobs. They're being replaced with contract jobs. They're being replaced with jobs that have no benefits and no way to really advance. We have retailers who actively help their employees apply for food assistance. So let's relocalize some of the industries that we've outsourced. It's not going to in the long run, harm the countries we've already outsourced to because we've ruined their domestic textile industries by a combination of putting our factories in their countries so they can export to us, which makes it impossible for them to be able to afford the very clothes that they're making. And with our fast fashion, by replacing our wardrobes every year by having clothing stores completely change over their entire product line every three weeks or so. It's crazy. There are not enough places around the world for us to export our used clothing to. Right, so a lot of it's... So a lot of it ends up in landfills, and what ends up in developing nations ruins those nations' textile industries. So we're not going to, if we bring textile production back to this country, we're not going to ruin those countries. They'll have an opportunity to 
actually make clothes for their people. And hopefully make a living wage. Right. Because I, I know I took a dress that I'd bought in a department store, like just a uh, probably an old Navy dress. I took a dress and I made the dress, like I used that as a pattern and made a dress for myself. And it was really interesting because I was like, I wonder how long it would take me to make this dress. It was just a basic t-shirt dress. Well, actually it wasn't, it was sleeveless. Two pieces, very, no, actually it was three pieces. The back panel was two pieces mm-hmm. and the front panel. And then you just have your like binding, you know, yeah. around the edge. And I spent probably, you know, a few hours because of course I was making it to like a pattern. I had to do a pattern right. and all that. So it took a little bit longer than if you had a pattern and all that. But what I realized is I was like, okay, if many Americans had the opportunity like to sit down and like make the thing that they buy and just kind of go through that process, I probably paid, I think $15 on sale for the dress. The fabric to buy it was probably $15 or a little bit more. <laughs> You know, I mean, because I want to have nice fabric. And then um, I my time to make it, there's no way I would sell that to somebody for $15. I mean, there's just no, no way I would do no. it. And But it's really eye-opening. And um, I know a lot of people are trying to change over their wardrobe to be handmade or locally made products. And that's fantastic. For a lot of people, they don't have the time to sew and all that. But... Or the knowledge. Or the knowledge mm-hmm. to do it. But I would love to see, as a country, I'd love to see us get back to really respecting that. And I know it was done out of necessity before, and now it's kind of hip to be, like, make your own. You know, it's kind of, it has this undercurrent of being super cool to do yeah. it. Um, so it's a different frame of mind because we have so many other alternatives. But um, I feel like what's happening politically and just globally, it now is a really great time to bring some of it home. Well, we don't have... Um, I don't think we care about our clothes that much. Well, no, because it's a throwaway fashion society. Because it's a throwaway society. Like, yeah. you, you wear something, you wash it once, some of the stuff doesn't even hold up for it one doesn't. washing. No. I used to make a lot of my clothes a long time ago. When my kids were young, I used to make some of their clothes, but I also went to secondhand stores for their, for their clothes because they... Yeah, they grow, grow fast. fast. And you're spending all the time um, making it, yeah. Then on the times when I when I've gone back into fabric stores, the quality of the fabric is appalling. Mm-hmm. It's really terrible. So let's get to the point where we not only feel our the food we eat and where it comes from and the quality of that food is important. We we're still not to the point where a lot of people are willing to really pay what it takes to 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 grow that food but Mm -hmm. we have to have that the concern and the honoring of the quality we have to have that with our clothes too right so the fiber needs to be grown here right so the whole idea of of that is what's called a fiber shed Mm -hmm. and there is a woman out in california who popularized that term Mm -hmm. her name's rebecca burgess and she created the fiber shed movement so to speak and how long ago was that five six years ago maybe yeah because i know something like her her name kicked around for a while yeah yeah she spent an entire year wearing only clothes that were where the fiber was raised and they were made all using natural dyes within like a 150 mile radius of wow. where she lived and in her California. clothes probably lasted a lot longer than i'm sure she's, <laughs> she's still, still wearing them. she's still wearing right, them right to try to do that in a place like michigan 
there, there's wool. Yeah. Um, but we it's don't, not real good on a 90 degree. I'm not quite sure that it's not possible even on a 90 degree day. Yeah. Granted, you have to, it's much finer, finer weave and stuff. Right. But we're going to need to bring back linen mm-hmm. in, um, in our climate because we can't grow cotton here. But we have to start promoting the use of natural dyes, of bringing the production of local wearable clothing from the level of artsy clothes to clothes that you can wear every day. Mainstream. Mainstream clothes. There are a lot of artists who make, whether it's weaving or knitting or whatever, make a lot of items. You can find that when you go to a lot of the show fiber shows or um, a lot of the local guilds have fiber sales but honestly there's only so many scarves that I can wear (laughs) and I work on a farm I don't use shawls very often right I do wear pants and shirts and jackets and you're wearing work clothes you can work in I'm wearing clothes you can work in there was a time when Wool and cotton and linen were all we had, and we made everyday clothes from them as well. So part of my goal is to make clothing that I can work in. Mm -hmm. Because of the cost differential, at first that's only going going to be for me. Right. Because... It would be really hard for you to pay. Yeah, to to pay $200 for a pair of jeans that I'm going to wear on the farm and get dirty not everybody's going to be willing to do that right um but that brings in the idea of producing wool here dyeing that wool using natural dyes that i can grow in this bioregion or can collect Mm -hmm. in the in the wild right so one of the reasons that the chemical dyes became so popular when they first were brought out. One is that, yes, you can make really vibrant colors with them, but you can make vibrant colors with natural dyes too. You sure can. They aren't, they don't tend to be as long lasting as the chemical dyes. So that was one of the big draws of those dyes. Another is that the chemical dyes can be very consistent. Right, you can get the same color over and over. You can get almost exactly the same color over and over. And when I first started dabbling in natural dyes, you know, you'd put, you'd fill a pot with some plant material, you'd dye your fat, your fiber, and then I wasn't very good at taking notes. (laughs) I do the same thing. (laughs) And you come back later maybe a couple of years and you see a yarn that you dyed a few years ago and think that's fantastic I want to make that again and there are some colors with some dyes that I still have not been able to duplicate so the other aspect here on the farm that I'm doing is I'm growing dye material such as coreopsis it makes a gorgeous garden flower yellow petals that are reddish orange near the center of the Mm -hmm. flower and with a dark orange really deep orange center that's a very strong dye that um, can make 
a huge range of colors with. So I'm, I'd grow Coreopsis, Madder, Marigold, Gold Mercury, and a number of other dyes. I had this idea based on a an example in a dye book that I have where the author looked at different mordants, which are metal salts that help the dye attach to the, the fiber, mm-hmm. and different treatments for the the color. And you could do you could get a see a range of colors that you can get using one dye pot. And by keeping notes on my sample card of what the dye is, what the mordant is, and what the treatment is, I can and how much dye material I use to a certain weight of fiber, I can see a whole range of colors that I can get. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be 100% reproducible right? because you're talking about a natural growing a plant or root or bark. And from one year to another, because the conditions, weather conditions and rainfall and right. soil conditions change, it's going to be... It, there's going to have some differences with the plant every year. But if I can if I can get a better idea of what colors I can expect, then I've got a little bit more of that reproducibility. Right. And this is based on Jenny Dean's book. It is based on Jenny Dean's book Wild Color. Yeah. 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 So she did she did twenty five colors in one dye pot. I've expanded it to thirty by adding an additional mordant. I, I use tin as one mordant. And part of that, some of the mordants that you use in natural dyeing have potentially harmful effects. They can be toxic, especially if you don't dispose of the, the finished dye material or mordant back properly. But the combination of playing around with the amount of mordant and bringing it down as much as possible, it's still getting the same results. I can mordant a certain amount of the fiber and know that most of that is taken up by the, most of the mordant in the bath is taken up by it's the... It's been absorbed. It's been absorbed. So, and by keeping those mordant baths and using them multiple times, I also use as much as possible mm-hmm. the, so of the mordant. It's not wasteful, it's not harmful. Right. 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 And then, if, for example, I have a color that I get using a tin mordant, Mm -hmm. which is potentially more harmful to the environment than, say, alum, if I can can find another mordant that I get the same result, similar results, then I don't have to use tin. Which Um, is great. But if I don't get it any other way, I'm okay with using it in small quantities if I to get the results I want. Right. So it's being very strategic and thoughtful about yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. And so from that, as I as my wool supply from my own sheep expands, I can produce yarns, whether hand spun or mill spun. I can produce yarns and increase the possibilities that people can see for creating high quality beautiful textiles all all from local sources mm-hmm. and 
let's say I get to the point where I can make most of my clothes from local sources. I can have, like people used to do, I can have some sets of clothes that are completely homemade, homegrown. And at the stage that I first start wearing those, they may not be farm clothes. Right. They may be more special purpose right. clothes. And then as they wear, then they get moved down the line so that... They're farm clothes. They're eventually. farm clothes. Yeah. And that's the way we used to wear clothes. Well, yeah, you wear we your, don't, your worn out clothes to go play or do work. Yeah, you yeah. don't need several closets full mm-hmm. of clothes because there's only only so many hours in the day and how much we don't have the time in our lives to, to wear all the clothes that we've that we have have you done any um work with taking clothes that because i know now that i know when you donate clothes they're not really going to because you imagine like some other family coming along and buying your old clothes <laughs> but that's not really what's happening when you donate to a lot of these places so have you done dye experiments on just your own clothes like just to change the color of a shirt or uh, sew your stuff into something else i haven't a lot i haven't done much what's called upcycling yeah mostly because most of the dyeing that i've done up till now has been with wool right and most of the wool clothing that i have is already dyed some pretty bright cool. colors right. so yeah you don't need to. so i have plans unfortunately it's only 24 hours in, in a day yeah to true. to expand some of the dye experiments that i do with to include cotton and and other fibers like mm-hmm. that there's a big difference with the mordants that you need oh yeah for protein fibers which is all the any any fiber that comes from an animal or from silk mm-hmm. there's a you need a complete set of procedures and mordants for cellulose fibers, which means the cotton and the linen right. and stuff. So I haven't done as much of that. I would like to do a little bit more upcycling of clothes that I have. Um, at this point, I went from working in an office to working on a farm, and I have more clothes than I need right now. So, And, and they're not easily they don't may easily make the transition from We're office clothes office to, to farm clothes <laughs> so you're yeah, not going to put a blazer on and go out the, with the shoes <laughs> no not too often yeah. so I think at some stage I'll do a little bit more of that because I think that's we have such an inventory worldwide of clothes that, that I think there's going to have to be a whole lot we have to get back to the point where we repair clothes Mm -hmm. we upcycle clothes let's change what the purpose is of the clothes that we have go buy a lightweight blanket at a at a resale store and make it into something else right we have to do a lot more of that i think and maybe there's a hidden silver lining with some of the things that are happening politically yeah, I'm on the that trade this, fronts. Yeah. Because we can't keep increasing efficiency of businesses in the US by getting rid of jobs because we still have to work if not for putting food on the table for just our personal feeling of self-worth. Well, exactly. Yeah, we, we need we need, we need, we need to feel 
necessary. Mm-hmm. We need to feel like we're here for some purpose. Mm-hmm. And being a greeter at a chain store is not giving a lot of people purpose. And flipping burgers at a fast food restaurant is not giving a lot of people purpose. And at the same time, anytime you go to an art show or a fiber festival where there's demonstrations and you see the person actually doing what they do, the thing that I'm always struck by is how happy those people seem to be. Because they found something that they really enjoy doing and they're making a little bit of money doing that and it would be so I I really wish for everyone to have that experience to find something that they can make themselves and and get to experience the satisfaction of whether it's dyeing a skein of yarn successfully or learning to knit and make yourself a pair of socks Um, the only pair of socks I've made was for my mom and I tried them on before I gave them to her because I wanted to feel what handmade socks felt like and so I said, Mom, you know, I, I tried them on, just, <laughs> I, I try not to stretch them out, but yeah, I mean, and it's just, you get a great deal of satisfaction when you make something, and um, when you make something yourself, and, you know, and those of us who make things, like, I make weaving looms, and when I make the looms, and I ship them to places around the world, um, but mostly in the United States, it's really satisfying to know you made something, and now someone else is going to take that thing and make something else. It's really fun. And we, we have this we have this idea in our culture that if it's something you really love to do, you don't want to turn it into a way to make your living. I think that's totally wrong. Well, I think it's sad. I think it's because if you have to hate your sad. job to make it to be in the right job, like that's terrible. Yeah. So so why maybe it's a combination of let's stop wanting so many things so that we can make things that we love to make and love to love the whole process and be happy where we are. As a farmer, I'm not going to be making thousands and thousands of dollars. But by growing my own food, growing my own fiber, creating my own fertility on my own farm, I'm happy here. I'm happy with what I have and I don't need huge amounts of clothes or fancy food to be happy. And mm-hmm. I think we need to look more in ourselves and what, what it is within ourselves that makes us happy. If dyeing fiber and raising sheep and raising vegetables is what makes you happy, then I don't think you need as much of the money and as much of the stuff that we seem to feel people need in in our culture maybe to calculate the health and the health of a society we need some other metrics if i can make somebody happy at the farmer's market by selling them a couple of dryer balls then that makes me happy too right and you can tell the name of the sheep who contributed possibly yeah yeah, possibly (laughs) i can tell them the if they're if they're not white i can at least tell them what they're dyed with and it's not going to be it's not going to be a harsh chemical dye that's that's caused somebody's drinking water in pakistan or indonesia to turn bright pink oh my word yeah yeah. that's really horrifying yeah so i can i can say that i grew these flowers in my garden and i dyed the wool from my sheep to make your dryer balls of course i'm not gonna because they're buying a dryer ball and and helping to create my living i'm not 
going to necessarily tell them, yeah, but you don't need dryers at all if you hang your clothes clothes up and use the sun to dry them. Well, most people aren't going to do that, though, because they don't have the time. <laughs> you know, they're not, no. gonna, they're not going to hang things up. Yeah, that's true. But I find it very zen-like when you do use... I'm not allowed to have a clothesline, really, in my neighborhood. Oh, really? really t- ridiculous. But I hang things up on my deck. I just put... I string up some ropes and hang things. But, th- but I don't have time to do that a lot of the time, yeah. especially in the winter. You got to use your dryer. So, um, well, I'm curious about um, your di- natural dyeing and how many years have you been doing this now? Like, when did your first experiment start for you personally? I probably started playing with natural dyes about somewhere around 10 to 15 years ago. Okay. And then yeah. when did it become, because now you're teaching workshops mm-hmm. and you're, I mean, this has become a, a thing that you do. Yep. It? So, when did that start? When did this become a professional enterprise? Um, it went through a transition where I was doing public demonstrations of the natural dyeing, and that was through the venue of Viking era reenactments. I was part of a couple of different groups over the years that had, often at Renaissance festivals, they have a period area where yeah. where it's more historically based as opposed to fantasy based. Right, and so I was doing some actual outdoor dye demonstrations using iron pots and and open fires and wearing Viking era clothing and that's when I was doing a lot of the different dabbling and I So you were not in, having, completely in period gear and like all decked out and, Yeah, right. just imagine Memorial Day, like Memorial Day weekend this year when it was so hot oh. I was at Renaissance Festivals wearing Viking era clothing and they wore dresses with the sleeves down to their um the wrists oh my goodness high collars what kind of fabric is it it was mostly linen okay yeah so at least it wasn't wool but it was several layers wow so i was i was doing that i had been doing a little bit of dabbling with dyeing before i started that but that really ramped it up because the whole idea of these reenactment camps were to answer questions of the public and the number of people that would see me spinning using a drop spindle then I'd say well the Vikings didn't have spinning wheels which a lot of these people weren't even familiar with they would make all of the clothes starting with a drop spindle which is just incredible which is just incredible it takes a long time especially Um, when you're spinning it so fine mm -hmm, that you want it to be right because you're not going to have like a chunky linen whatever no no you're spinning it very fine and little viking children learned how to spin boys and girls by the time they were five five years old yeah and so you start answering questions about that where does wool come from how do you raise sheep how do you make the different colors because we also often have this idea based on hollywood and all these the, the period movies that everybody wore really dull colored clothing the vikings loved color so they had blues and reds and pinks and purples and anything that they could make and sometimes it was because different colors are easier or more difficult to obtain if it was an easy color to obtain they might have most like almost a complete garment made out of that color okay but let's say yellow because yellow is really easy to right. do but blue's really fantastic and so are reds and and, and purples mm-hmm. those are more difficult to obtain more expensive so they might have a 
tablet woven trim that decorates the clothing. Right. And with much more more vibrant colors that are more expensive to obtain. So they, they just loved colors and they put all kinds of colors together, which is the other thing I really like about natural dyes because it's really hard to find colors that clash with natural dyes. They actually really it is go that is something quite that's pretty well cool. together. Because when you put a pile of natural dyed yarn together it like nothing jumps out. Or if you yeah. put a commercial yarn together you can see it's that like just glaring yeah. like it's really can be upsetting to the eye. Yeah. So that is really a yeah. wonderful thing. So that was my introduction to basically teaching about it. Okay. And I worked from twenty eleven till twenty Sixteen at Tillers International, and while I was there, and if you could explain what that is for people, Tillers, who don't know. Tillers is a nonprofit organization whose primary purpose is to teach animal-powered agriculture in developing countries. Okay, so not everybody had an agricultural system that uses animal power, i.e., oxen and horses to pull mm-hmm. cows and things like that. And they have a demonstration farm in Scots. And at the time, both the farm manager and I were into fibers. Okay. The farm manager had a flock of sheep, merino, and um, I have always had an interest in fiber. So we were able to work into the educational curriculum. I was the education coordinator. So I put together the schedule of classes. Nice. So in addition to the timber framing, the blacksmithing, the animal-powered agriculture classes, we started adding more spinning and dyeing and similar classes like nice. that. So that's where I started teaching like whole-day classes in, in natural dyeing. Um, after that, after I left there... I part of the reason I left was because I didn't have enough time to devote to the fiber related activities. Mm-hmm. It, after that, I started to putting in proposals to teach classes in other venues. And mm-hmm. the last two years, I've taught the dye classes at Michigan Fiber Fest, and I'll be doing a class with Woodland Weavers Guild in mm-hmm. October. Or, right. It's I, September, it's September very last 30th. day of September. Yeah. Very last day of September. Of September, um, I'll be teaching. I. If you go into yarn stores, what's really popular or what has high popularity are variegated skeins of mm-hmm. wool. So you have a lot of yeah. colors in one skein, and so I've been working on ways to do variegated skeins of yarn with natural dyes. It's a lot harder than with the chemical dyes, and there's a lot more processes, but you can get some really beautiful cool. skeins, both from single single dyes, which would have more than one mordant in each skein, mm-hmm. and single mordants with more than one dye in each skein. So I'm teaching a half-day class at the Fiber Expo in Ann Arbor in October, on okay. Sunday morning. Is it on the variegated process? Yeah, on the variegated process. And I'm just going to be putting in more proposals for different classes. Just keep experimenting? That'll just, yeah. I don't want to consider this my proprietary dye method. I want more people to be able to do it. And it's okay if they try it and 
they would rather buy their yarn from me. But but to know what goes into producing naturally dyed fibers Mm -hmm. goes back to knowing, just like with food, know where your fiber comes from and how it gets to the final stage, just the same as it's important to know where your food comes from and what goes into bringing that food to you. And I know there's an effort in Michigan already on the east side of the state to have a fiber shed. And then I think you're involved with some talks about spreading that to West Michigan. Yeah. Uh, It's the other part of our state. And um, so what is is your hope for that? What would you like to see happen? Well, the first part of that, I am so glad that somebody's working on the fiber shed idea in Mm -hmm. Michigan. It's affiliated with the... Rebecca Burgess Fiber Shed. Mm -hmm. Um, There's satellite fiber sheds throughout the country and in other places in the world. And there's every fiber shed is going to be slightly different because of the environment in which that region has. The climate, the types of fibers they can grow, the types of dyes they can grow, and things like that. So every fiber shed is going to be developed somewhat differently. The Detroit fiber shed was created with a radius of 250 miles, so West Michigan is included in that. The idea with that, first of all, is to create a directory of people who are involved in relocalizing fiber. So that would be fiber farmers, fiber processors, fiber mills. There's at least half a dozen mills in Michigan that can take fiber from its raw state to a state of having yarn or rovings for Mm -hmm. spinners to use. Artists who are creating finished products with local fiber, natural dye sources, natural dyers, So the idea is to have a a directory of everybody whose work is to relocalize fiber from the starting point to the finished product. Beyond that, there's always the educational aspects. So what does does relocalizing fiber mean? What's involved? What kinds of things will we need to do? We have half a dozen or so fiber mills that can create roving or yarn, we don't have larger scale weavers that are creating livable fibers. We have the creation of artistic fibers. Mm -hmm. So we need to ramp that up. And that's something that, that would be part of the fiber shed idea. We're going to have a West Michigan get together, meet and greet for fiber shed in mid-October, possibly October 14th. I haven't nailed down the date yet. That looks like the the one that works in with my schedule best, and that we're going to be having it here at my farm. And I'll share with you final yeah, I can post that. I I like to Um, spread the word. And that's mostly just let's get together and talk about the whole idea of fiber shed and what that means. The number of people who are into fibers, into natural fibers, into local fibers, but they may have a neighbor that's into it, and they've just I have never no met. idea. That's and true. No How many idea. people do you think you'll you'll attract to that first meeting? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> Everybody has busy lives, and 
I'm never going to be able to find a time that for works right. That That's, works. Are you trying to have it on a weekend? It's on a Sunday. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because there's a couple things that are like fiber type retreats happening the first weekend in October. Right. So you're trying to find a, a fiber and dye studio that I'm that I work with in Kalamazoo has a class on the Saturday. And I have market on Saturday, right. so that's so you're just not trying as to easy, so I'm just fine. So I think October 14th is still, chances are, hopefully, that the weather will still be okay. And the whole point is to start the conversation. Right. You know, right. and see what and happens. And spreading the word that there is a group that's working on things like, like this, mm-hmm. I think, is the first step. They did have a um, an event this last weekend w- where they did stuff with natural dyes and and things like that. Oh yeah, in Detroit. Yeah, in Detroit. I heard about that. I didn't. Yeah. I got as far as Ann Arbor this weekend, but I didn't get all the way uh, over. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I. It's like. Uh, it's it just it's been, it's hard to it's, get across. Yeah. So I mean, our state is not huge, but still, you can't drop whatever you're doing and go over there. Well, it'd be nice to have kind of satellite, like there's something going on in the Grand Rapids area, something down in the Kalamazoo, Allegan area. It's like, yeah. It'd be nice to have, and then have a network between, right? you know, and connect right. people. So that if, if you're going to another part of the state, you've got, just like how people go for, when they, if I go on vacation, I'm going to find a, find a yarn store or something like that. Oh yeah, like we that. all do that, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this way I can, I can go to another site part of the state and there may visit. be maybe I could visit a farm mm-hmm. or something else where they're involved with right with fibers a network as well. of people and yeah network of people yeah and well, I have this crazy crazy idea that it'd be awesome to be able to with uh, hydroponics and like just indoor grow spaces I, I'm growing cotton on my back deck right now Are you? and it's bloomed and now what happens next is happening and I know I'm going to have to bring, I put them in pots so I could bring them in because I don't think the grow season is way too long Gross, yeah but I'm just thinking to myself with some greenhouses we might actually be able to it won't be the same as down south you have conditions right. that are perfect but I just keep thinking like with the advances in technology there might be a way that without having to be totally I know you want it to be natural though like if you don't want to use like science to like mm. genetically alter the plants or anything but i just keep thinking hmm i don't know well the, the thing with cotton though is i know a lot of weavers who who just think the quality of the cotton that's available now is awful i did a weaving project last year and i won't buy conventional cotton for weaving because mm-hmm. it's all genetically modified and it's not to say that the genetic modification is a bad thing the reason they genetically modified it was so they can spray it with herbicides and just like when you're developing a new chicken breed so that it gets heavier faster whenever you're introducing some traits you're losing other traits right and in my opinion one of the things that they've lost with the new cottons in order to make it, they're concentrating only on the production end of the cotton so that they have huge volume, the quality of the end product has gone down. So we're, the cotton isn't as soft. It's not as, it's just not as nice. Right. And I did a, did a project with organic cotton that came from Peru, but this is the softest stuff I've ever felt. Right. It's not like the cotton you can buy now. Yeah, well, I, conventional cotton. Yeah, I'm just really interested in ex- 
you know, just yeah. experimenting with that kind of well, stuff. Well, I think we I think, need to... Because I think indoors, if you had... Just if the grow season is the problem, like that our, that our yeah, warm the weather is not long enough. Yeah. I'm like, there are ways that easily, if you could pull the plants in... It depends on whether the, whether it's just the length of the growing season and the heat or the or if it's the amount of light. But the other thing is that we want to have the fibers to be accessible. Right. And anytime you bring it indoors, greenhouses, they're going to be heated. There's the, Then the energy cost for producing that goes up, too. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm wondering if you would have to... Because sometimes if you have a greenhouse at the tail end of a season and you're not heating it, it's just because it's insulated, yeah. the sun is doing its thing. Right. Um, I'm definitely not suggesting that we, yeah. like... Yeah. heat the cotton like yeah. unless, you know but I'm just I'm just thinking like maybe there is a way I don't know yeah there might be we need I think we need to bring but there's linen definitely, back more. oh yeah I'm trying to grow that too that's yeah. not doing I have, as well I have that's not doing as well it doesn't compete very well against weeds no and I, I put it in the pot with some other things like I had a and that it, was a big mistake it, what you, it should be if you grow it in a pot it should be very densely planted so that the, the, the linen plants don't branch Mm. because you don't want them to branch because that shortens the fiber. Okay. Um, But I've grown linen. I've grown flax in the past, too. Have you spun it? No, I didn't get it past the redding stage. Yeah, because I'm trying to... I would love to have that experience. And I know it's way more difficult than just the whole process. Yeah, Yeah. I I have spun linen before. I took a class at Fiberfest years ago um, on spinning linen and it was we had flax in all different stages and they got um, it to toe that. linen and long line linen and, and stuff and linen fell out of favor but because compared to cotton I mean that's linens you know dish towels and things like that mm-hmm. linen has this has this reputation of oh you have to treat it very gently and stuff like that no, you have to wash the hell out of it, and then then it gets softer every time you wash right. it. So clothing made out of linen, if it's washed, well washed before you make the clothing, right? You can wash it. It washes beautifully, and it's soft, and it's well, it's very not going to shrink to wear. Anymore. And it's yeah, I had linen pants on that are like my sister gave me these pants. She was getting rid of them, and they're just really like balloony kind of pants, and they're really loose pants. They're so. I mean, I prefer to wear those on a hot day mm-hmm. than a pair of shorts. Yeah, like I, they're just you can breathe. Mm-hmm. Really cold. Yeah. So wear. so, yeah, it's, they're great. But I don't know if there's anything we covered a lot of ground here. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything that I didn't ask you that you want people to know about you or your business. What's the best way for people to reach you if they're interested in one of your classes or learning more about your farm? Best way to reach me would probably be email. Okay, and that's. Natural Cycles Farm, all small letters, one word, at gmail.com. Okay. We do have a Facebook page. Okay. And that's Natural Cycles Farm. When we were coming up with a name, I did all the possible options that we, we thought of. I did, I did search, and there's nothing called Natural Cycles Farm. So if you were to search in Facebook Natural Cycles Farm, I believe you'd get it. Okay. Um, I will be creating an Etsy site. Um, probably by the same name. Probably by the same okay. name. I'll yeah. post the link when you have it available. Okay. And the other thing, if you're local enough, was to come visit our booth at the Kalamazoo Farmer's Market. Um, that way you can see some of the yarns I have as well. But but contacting me by 
Facebook or email is great. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for doing your part to get, you know, just people to think about their fiber, where it's coming from, mm -hmm. and uh, teaching them how to make it very pretty. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. The clothes I wear, wear day to day on the farm are not going to be necessarily have the colors that, that no, the yarn from is the gorgeous. natural, yeah, from the natural dyes. But maybe one day, maybe one day I'll even have have farm clothes that are that are not dyed. Yeah, colorful. yeah. Well, you know, you'll probably be attracting bees and butterflies <laughs> as you're walking around, which you might not want to. <laughs> Well, butterflies are okay. Butterflies are good. The bees, the bees are not, not, so so, not so much. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks again for letting me come out. I You're really welcome. enjoyed my visit. Thank yeah. you. A special thanks to Lori for being a guest on the show. I really appreciated the time she took to show me around her farm and talk to me about her efforts in the slow fashion and just being someone who's out there really helping empower people by sharing her knowledge about you know farming and raising sheep and naturally dyeing clothing it's amazing how much color you can get out of plants that you can grow in your own backyard and it is so gratifying uh, i actually just wove a couple cowls with yarn that i had dyed it was from my precious stash i i've been dyeing yarn for several years and I just kind of squirrel it away and most of it I hadn't used so I'm starting to weave it now and it's it's really fun and I'm like wow these these things are so bright these cowls so it's amazing you can get a lot of color so I was using uh, pokeberries for one and it's actually been color fast I know that's a big question that people have and I've had this yarn is probably about five years old I haven't had it out in the sunlight you know I'm, I didn't leave it on my dashboard on a hot day so I expect some fading as it gets out there in the sun but I also have a cowl made out of four different kinds of yarn that was dyed with goldenrod so yeah it's really really fun and those of you who are local here in West Michigan on September 30th Lori is going to be doing a workshop for the Woodland Weavers and Spinners Guild. And we still have a couple spots left. The only downside to this is it's a workshop for members. So in order to join the workshop, you have to join the guild. So um, the membership for the guild is about $30 and the workshop is gonna be about $63 if I remember everything correctly. It's still less than the workshop I p took at the Michigan Fiber Fest. So it's a pretty good deal. So if you're interested, you can send me a message and I will get you the information that you need. You can email jennifer at craftsanity.com and I will get you the, the details. I will also post links to Lori's farm and other information about her. So, oh, and I'll also post photos of her darling sheep <laughs> and some of the other critters that I met when I was there for my visit. Thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And thank you to my Patreon sponsors for helping to keep the show going. I really appreciate your commitment to helping me do what I do. I have another episode that I'm recording in a couple days. So there'll be another episode out very soon. So if you have an idea of who you'd like to hear me talk to, feel free to send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com. Oh, I wanted to mention really quickly before I sign off that... I'm going to be clearancing out some of my Craft Sanity loom stash. I have some new things that I'm going to be introducing, so I'm trying to clear out some of my inventory before the end of the year. So if any of you are looking to get classroom sets of looms or things that you want to use in a teaching setting or you just want to snag a set of three for yourself, um, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of 
pot, well, not a lot, but I will have several sets of potholder looms in the three sizes that I will be looking to clear out because I have other things that I'm working on. I still will be selling sets of three, so that's not going to change. They're just going to be slightly different. So I think that um, I'm just trying to, you know, get my stockpile. So I'm like a squirrel with my looms. I kind of squirrel them away. And I really need to stop doing that. So I'm kind of downsizing my own personal collection. I'm looking to clear the way for some new stuff. So if you are interested in this, kind of keep an eye on my social media. I'll be posting, saying, hey, guys, I have some looms. And also for those of you who are teachers out there, I do have some seconds of the laser cut looms as well that I'll be clearancing out. So keep an eye out for those. And these will be, all the looms are functional. They just might have some flaw that prevents me from selling it at the full price. So I often will work on these flawed looms because I sell the best ones and I, I work on kind of the seconds myself. And I find that they work fine. You know, it's just, they might have, you know, some little flaw that, makes it look a little slight, you know, a little less pretty than a perfectly great one. Um, <laughs> but I'm all about function. It's like, does it work? If it works, I'm like, yeah, I'll still use it. So anyway, just want to let you guys know that some opportunities to snag some craft sanity looms at discounted prices if you're interested. So keep an eye on the social media. And if you just can't wait, email me and I will tell you what's going on and you can tell me what you're looking for and I'll let you know if I have it in my stash that I'm going to be selling off. So, all right. I will be back with another episode very soon. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time now.